Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Great. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. You sound a little, a little kind of down a little bit. Let me ask the question one more time. How's everybody doing today? Okay, there we go. We got a little more energy there. That's good. My name's Chad, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's always a privilege for us to be able to be together. Thank you so much for that. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. You can keep your finger there. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment. But we've been in a series called Submit, What Does It Meme? And you'll remember that a meme is a picture or a video that just does more than words by themselves can do. And we've been seeing how in Scripture there's this complicated topic that really is a topic that our culture doesn't really respect at all today, and it's the topic of submission. So we've seen in Scripture how God paints these different pictures of what submission really looks like in order to help us understand what He means when He talks about submission. And you know what I mean when I say that submission is one of those topics that people just really don't appreciate, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw someone knock a ball out of the park, right? They're, they knock it out of the park. It's a grand slam home run. They're running around the bases and they get to home plate. And someone, one of the commentators goes, man, that was the best baseball hit ever. And that player, he's just so cool. He's so submissive. When was the last time you heard anybody say that? Yeah, nobody talks like that because submission is just one of those things that we don't really respect, yet Scripture identifies for us as a quality of character that's really something admirable, and really it's a quality of character that's foundational to our faith. And over the past several weeks, we've seen several different pictures of what it looks like. The first week, uh, we got to talk about submission to the government, you know, everybody's favorite topic, how to submit to the government. I'm with the IRS. I'm here to help, right? That's exactly how that works. And then the second week, Chris was up here and he talked about submission in our workspaces, what it looks like to be in the workplace with bosses and employees, slaves and masters and things like that. What does that look like? And I just remember thinking as Chris was putting together the sermon outline and who's going to preach on which days, I think submission, that's, I'm going to have to introduce submission. And he asked me to talk about the government. That's not hard at all the first week. Thank you, Chris. And so I submitted to him. And now here we are today. And today the topic is submission in marriage. Um, that's not controversial at all either, right? That's not, and, and so he's out of town today. He's actually preaching the wedding of a church member in another state today. And so we're excited for them and, and their family and, and what's going on there. We're actually, we think this topic's important enough that we're going to cover the same passage of scripture two weeks in a row. So I'll, I'll be up here this week and then Chris is going to approach it next week. And we're going to take a look in depth at what it means to submit in marriage. And one of the complexities is that this is the passage of scripture where the, the Bible describes women as the weaker vessel. <laughs> There's no risk in that at all for me, right? There's none whatsoever. Um, I think it may be why we founded Oklahoma Disaster Relief is for sermons just like this one, so there can be some cleanup afterwards on aisle 12. You know, that's the way that's going to work. I just want to remind you as we approach this topic that while it is complicated, while it is controversial, while it's challenging, it is something that Scripture, scripture teaches very clearly. And I want you to listen closely today because I think what you're going to find is that there's been this historic message that the church has had about what it means to submit in marriage. And I think that's, that, that historic message is relevant, and I think it's accurate. But at the same time, I think as you listen today, you might discover that what you think a preacher might say about submission in marriage may not be exactly what, what you expect because what we're looking at is the way Scripture talks about it rather than the way culture talks about it. So just by way of reminder, submission, the definition that we gave for it is submission is when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. 
Submission is when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. And so as I was thinking about how can we best illustrate and apply this message as I'm preaching on submission and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as I'm doing that, what would be the best way to illustrate that and apply that? Because there's all kinds of stories I could tell about my relationship with Londa that would get me in lots and lots of trouble. And so since she writes most of my messages anyway, I thought, why not just invite her to come with me and help me illustrate and apply things? And so would you welcome my wife, Londa, to the platform, my lovely bride? Come on out, Londa. Yay. We're so excited that you're here with us today. Thank you so much for coming and, and helping me with this today, and I'm so thankful that we get to do this together. This is going to be fun, and you can always kick me under the table if I say anything out of line. Is that all right? Yes. Okay, so uh, we like to honor the reading of Scripture by standing together. So in 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we are, so go ahead and stand with us, and let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks so much. You can be seated. And Londa, I really am glad that we get to be here together doing this today. And so I'm just going to start with a question. I'm just going to ask you uh, to begin with, um, when I said to you, hey, Chris and I are talking about submission in marriage, and we think it'd be great if our wives joined us on the platform. What was the first thing that came to your mind when I said, hey, come, come do this with me? What was your first thought? I thought you were joking. I said, <laughs> are you kidding? And um, then I got a little bit excited, and now I'm a bit sick to my stomach. So. <laughs> it's good to know I make you sick. That's great. That's awesome. So I know this is a really difficult topic to talk about. Um, and, and I think it's difficult because it's just such an unpopular thing in our culture these days, right? It's just unpopular. Submission is unpopular. Uh, the idea that there would be some kind of a submissive relationship between husbands and wives and wives and husbands, it's a difficult topic to talk about. So why do you think talking about submission in marriage is difficult? Why, why do you think that's hard? I think it's difficult because oftentimes I don't want to submit. I want to do things my way, and there are times when I think you're wrong. Um, no. I know. No. It never happens. But I, and, I thought I was wrong once, but I found out I was mistaken. Mm -hmm. And arrogance is really helpful in a marriage. Um, so. And um, there are times when you ask me to do things and I don't really understand why you're asking me to do those things. And so that makes it difficult to submit sometimes. Like several years ago when we were pulling up to a hotel and we were getting our things out of the car and I was excited to finally be there. And then you come to my side and you said, get back in the car. And you said it very sternly and... Um, kind of harsh, and so I wanted to say, why? We just got here. I'm just now getting our stuff out, but I didn't because the way you said it made me think I better listen, and 
do what you're asking me to do. So I got back in the car and then you explained to me that you had seen two guys at the hotel. One was over um, in this direction and one was in another direction. And as we were getting our things out of the car, they began to come toward us and you got the feeling that this wasn't gonna be a good situation. So you told me to get in the car and um, at that moment I was glad I listened. Yeah, there's just these moments sometimes. And but that was a fun trip. I'm, that was in Kansas City that we got to do that. That was so much fun. We got to go and be a part of that. But it really was one of those odd circumstances where I didn't have time to be kind or gracious, or explain, or be thoughtful, and everything turned out fine. It just was weird. It was one of those weird moments where there's a guy standing on the corner here, and there's a guy at the front of the hotel, you know, between us and the entrance to the hotel, and I pulled up into a parking spot, and as we're getting our stuff out, the guy over here is walking towards our car and doesn't take his eyes off of our car. And the same thing's happening with this other group. Actually, there were two guys over here that were coming this direction. And so I was just stern, and I was direct, get in the car. <laughs> and so we got in the car. And I backed out, and then they met each other in the middle and walked off. And I was like, oh, okay, they're not really here for us. But it was just one of those nerve-wracking moments uh, that it was that moment where I just didn't have time to be gracious. It's time to just, let's go. And that's really more an exception to the rule in, inside our relationship, I hope. Is that right? <laughs> Am I, do I do better than that most of the time? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Good job. We're on camera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but really, I think, it, I think it reveals something about the way submission works. It's almost like there's this sliding scale. I, I don't know that submission is ever easy, but I think there's a condition that makes submission easier, and there's a condition that makes submission harder, more difficult. And I think on, the, on, the, on one side of the scale is this idea that when you're living your life, you said it a second ago, arrogance always helps in a marriage. Well, when you live your lives together in humility, I think in that moment when it's time to be submissive to one another, that submission becomes easier. Because when I think about humility, I don't think of humility as thinking highly of yourself or lowly of yourself. It's not really about not thinking of yourself at all. I'm not sure that you can actually be humble if you don't first have an accurate and honest assessment of what you're capable of. And, and once you know what you're capable of, in humility, you can take what you're capable of and now use that for the benefit of someone else. And so we actually use that phrase around here periodically. We use it because I think of it. This is my favorite version of, uh, favorite definition of humility, that humility is using who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. If you think about who Jesus was, he knew exactly who he was, son of God, son of man. He was capable of anything and everything, yet he chose to use in humility all of the authority he had as God for your benefit and for mine. And so on the sliding scale of submission, humility makes things easier. On the other end is authority. Now, authority is important, and sometimes you have to be submissive because you're under someone's authority, and that's really, really important. But sometimes do this because I said so is just hard, right? You see that with parents and kids, do it because I said so. Sometimes those conversations just make things harder when it's a do this because I said so. Sometimes in submission, it's necessary but it does often make submission harder when we live on the authoritarian side of it rather than on the humility side of it. And as we talk about this passage of Scripture, and specifically as we talk about what it means to be a married couple living lives in mutual submission to God and to one another, I think it's important for us to realize that there are other qualities of character that we can pour into our lives that makes this an easier conversation 
or a harder conversation. And the more we can live on the let's be humble with one another side of things, the easier our conversations in marriage and about submission really, really will be. Now, when we were talking about this earlier, we just, we went through the verses together and we were just talking about things that we noticed. And there was something I thought you thought was interesting in verse one that, that we noticed. Tell me, tell me about that. He begins with the word likewise. And so that refers back to what we've talked about the last two weeks here about submission, first submitting to the government and then submitting to the people in our workplace. And so he begins with likewise. And I think the foundation of submission is submission to God. If, if we, um, we as humans, as people in our flesh, we struggle with submission to God because we in our flesh wanna do what we wanna do when we wanna do it. And we have a perfect God who loves us more than we could ever imagine and only wants the best for us. And so we still struggle with submission to that kind of God. So it's no wonder that we struggle with submission to one another when we're very imperfect in how we treat each other. It's interesting about that sliding scale from authority to humility. God actually has the authority to say, do this because I said so, right? He has the authority to do that. Yet at the same time, he demonstrates in humility that he employed all of who he was on our behalf. And I think sometimes we get confused about what the object of our submission really is or what, what, what it means to be submit because this idea of if we can submit to God first on that sliding scale of what's easy versus what's hard, it becomes easier for us to submit to one another in other contexts, where, whether it be a government context or a career context or a marriage context or between kids and parents or what, whatever the context is. It becomes easier because I think our ability to submit to God first really does reveal something. It reveals that my ability to submit isn't about the object of my submission. Think about who God is and what it is he's done for you. It's exactly like you just said. He's perfect in every way. He loves us with an everlasting love. He knows things about you that you don't know about yourself. He's done things for you and has gone, things through, gone, gone through things for you that you can't even really imagine. He's demonstrated time and time and time again that he has your best interest at heart. And when he says, don't do something, he, he means that I don't want you to do that because it's going to hurt you and it's going to break our relationship. It could kill you. It could hurt your, your family. It could hurt somebody else. And when he tells us don't, he's doing it for our best interest. And when he says, now, instead of don't, I'm going to tell you to do this. Don't do this and do this instead. When I tell you to, let, let's, I mean, even something as simple as sex before marriage, uh, just that idea that for whatever reason, God has said that sex in the context of marriage is beautiful and blessed, but outside the context of marriage, it's a fire that will burn you. He's saying, do it this way, not that way. This way is blessed. This way is not. Yet when it comes to submitting to God, who has demonstrated time and time again his love for us, as easy as it may be, because he's dealing with us in humility, using who he is and what he has for our benefit over and over and over again, we in our hearts still struggle to say yes to God because in our hearts we're still rebellious. We just want to do it our way instead of his way. So even in your marriage, you might go, well, I have the perfect excuse because my spouse is a jerk. Well, do you have the perfect excuse, whether they're a jerk or not? Because even in light of the perfect person who's done everything for you, you still act rebelliously toward them and refuse to submit. It's why that idea of submitting to God first is such a critical and such an important idea 
Because if we can get that piece of it right, then the other pieces, they don't automatically fall into place, but our heart and our mind are already in a place where we can be submissive to one another. Mutual submission out of mutual respect. I think it's just such a big idea. It's it's no wonder we struggle to submit to one another because we struggle to submit to God. So that would be my next question. Why do you think that God commands us to submit to one another in marriage? I think he shows us that in verses one and two, when he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he's talking about how um, a wife interacts with her husband and how she can, through her actions, show who Christ is. And so through our marriages, our marriages either magnify or they minimize the gospel. Jesus, in how he came to earth and left heaven and went through so much for us, sacrificed so much for us, is the perfect example of what submission looks like and what he gave up for us. And we, through our marriages, can show what that looks like. We can magnify what the gospel looks like and how we treat one another. And and I think that's so important because when you look in Scripture, the picture that God paints for how he, when he wants to help us understand what his relationship with his people really is, the picture that he uses over and over and over again is the picture of marriage. The church is described as the bride. Jesus is described as the bridegroom. It says that, that when Christ returns, that he's returning for his bride. When we go to heaven, we, we eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when God wants to paint the picture of what the gospel really is, God paints a picture of marriage. And so our marriages have the opportunity to magnify or to minimize that gospel story. Now, think about the word gospel. We talk about the gospel a lot here, and I don't want us to ever grow cold to what the gospel really is. But we say it so frequently that maybe we forget that it is good news. Like when when people look at the condition of your marriage, do they think that marriage reminds me of good news? Do they think that when they look at your marriage and the way you relate to one another? That marriage reminds me of the way Christ treats the church and the way the church relates to Christ. Do they think that about your marriage? Because our marriages can maximize, they can magnify, or they can minimize that gospel story. That's what's happening right there in verses 1 and 2. That This idea that there would be a woman who is a believer in Christ in a marriage where the husband is not a believer in Christ, and somehow through the way she lives toward him and with him, he becomes fully persuaded that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that's the way we can be forgiven. That's why we can be forgiven. That's actually the way I talk about the gospel the most. But when you think about a, a bigger, broader explanation of that good news about our relationship relationship with God through Jesus, that marriage supper of the Lamb, that idea that we're the bride of Christ and that he's the groom, what are we really seeing there in that picture? I think it's important for us to feel it and to remember it. Philippians chapter 2 actually gives us that picture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it starts with, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So first, I want us you to think and see and, and understand things the way Jesus did. And then you get verses 6 through 11, and what you see is you see Jesus yield himself over and over and over again. He yields, well, first he yields up his authority to be God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped is the way the verse says it. So he yielded his authority. And then after yielding his authority, he yielded his rights to be accused of crimes he didn't commit. 
right? He was accused of your sin. He was accused of my sin. Ultimately, he yielded his life. He gave up his life as to, to satisfy justice so that the punishment and penalty of your sacrifice, uh, the sacrifice for the punishment and penalty of your, of, of your sins, for your sins would be made. So we see Jesus submitting to God and really submitting to the human government and authorities of the day, yielding himself over and over and over again. That's the first part of the gospel. And the next part of the gospel is, is about what God has done. Because of what God has done in us and through us, because of what God has done for us, now we begin to yield our mind and our will and our emotions. We begin to, will, uh, to, to yield our choices and the way we do things to our Heavenly Father. We begin to trust Him to forgive and we begin to place our faith in Him for everything that pertains to life and to godliness. Now, Londa and I have been married, it'll be 27 years in August. We will have been married 27 years. And so I, I asked her to marry me on December 23rd, 1994. So for some of you, that makes this sound really ancient because you weren't even born yet, which is awesome. Um, but I remember that day with such clarity. I had asked her dad if I could have her hand in marriage, and he laughed at me. <laughs> Great, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. He said, well, I didn't ask Rosalind's dad, and all that stuff. It's such a great story. But on that day, we went to Woodward Park, and uh, we exchanged Christmas gifts, and she gave me a suit, because that was back in the day when you wore suits. I got a suit that I can't fit it's in pathetic. anymore. It's awesome. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, but I gave her uh, a Precious Moments figurine, is what I gave her for Christmas. And the Precious Moments figurine was of a little boy and a little girl, and the boy was down on one knee, and he had a note in his hand, and the note said, will you marry me? Please check this box, yes or no. And so I gave her that. She opened it as she opened it. I got down on one knee, and she checked the box. I'm so excited. She said, well, she checked Yes, she didn't check no, um, but she checked that box. But the language that I used, and partly this is because of who we are as a couple, the language that I used is actually gospel language when I asked her to marry me. The language I said to her, I, I looked at her and I said, all that I am and all that I ever will be, I give to you. Will you marry me? And I, I think that's gospel language. When we place our faith in Christ, isn't that what we're doing? Heavenly Father, all that I am, all that I ever will be, I give to you. I can do this because of what Jesus did for me. I couldn't even say those words if it hadn't been for what Jesus did for me. God, you've done something in me and through me that can't be explained because of me. And now, all that I am, all that I ever will be, I yield to you. That's gospel language. Our marriages will either magnify that story or, or minimize that story. And I think it's I think it's really important. Let's, let's take a look at verses 3 through 6. That's, that's just the interesting part of verses three, 3 through 6 because all of a sudden it feels like in this gospel-telling story that somehow he takes a side route, but he's really not taking a side route. Verses 3 through 6 say this, Do not let your adorning, and here specifically he's talking to the women. He's talking about the way women dress. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, Londa, why do you think Peter focuses on our outward appearance? Why, why do you think in these verses he's talking about our outward appearance? In light of the gospel, we don't have to make ourselves attractive to God. Sometimes we think that we need to act a certain way or look a certain way or be a certain way in order for God to accept us and to love us and, 
and to save us, and we don't need to do that. Um, it's because of him that we are saved and because of the sacrifice of his son. And then in light of our marriage, being manipulative, it mortgages our future. Our beauty fades, and oftentimes we may try to manipulate our spouse by the way that we look in order to get them to respond a certain way. And he's telling us here that's not what we should do. Instead, we can give our spouse the gift of submission and let God work in their hearts and minds more than we ever could. I think one of the greatest examples of this and of the gentle and quiet spirit is the story of Esther. Queen Esther needed to approach the king about um, the decree that had been written to have her people, the Jews, killed. And in those days, the queen couldn't just go before the king without being summoned or she could be killed. And so she asked her people to pray and fast with her for three days. And after those three days, she would approach the king. And when she did, he responded favorably to her. And he said, what, what would you like? Anything up to half the kingdom and it will be given to you. And she said, I'd like for you and Haman to come to a banquet that I've prepared for you. And so they came to the banquet. And again, the king asked her, what is it that you want? Anything up to half the kingdom. And again, she responded and said, I would like for you to come to another banquet. And she had every right and um, that moment to tell him what was on her heart and mind and to be upset about it, that Haman had deceived him into writing this decree that would have her people killed. And she could have been very emotional about it. She could have been led by her emotions, but instead she paused and she prayed and she asked those around her to do the same for her and with her. And because of that, God was working in the background to do more in that story than she could have ever hoped for or imagined. There's so much in that story that I hope that you'll read that God um, designs in the background while she is praying and while she's pausing and, um, and then in the final banquet that she has for the king and Haman, she tells him again when he asks her, what is it you want? She tells him what's on her heart and mind. And in that moment, he has Haman impelled on the pole that Haman had set up for Mordecai. And so had she been led by her emotions and from the very beginning just approached him and said, this is what's going on. And out of anger, um, just expressed what was on her heart, then all of those things that God was putting into place would have never have happened. And the story wouldn't have ended like, like it did because she paused and she prayed. And I think that we, especially as women, um, we think that we can fix things with our spouse. We think that by what we say and by the way we act toward them, that we can manipulate the situation and we can manipulate our spouse in order to get the result that we desire. When, if we would just let this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God work on our behalf and on behalf of our spouse, he can do so much more inside their hearts and lives than we ever could on our own. And I think that's such a great illustration. The story of Esther is such a great illustration. And you said some things in there that I think I want us to notice. First off, one of the reasons why this, I really believe what, what's being said in context of the scripture is that there were, there were believing women who were in marriages with non-believing men. And just out of history and habit and tradition, they were doing what they knew best to do. They were trying to dress up to persuade their man to believe the way they believed. And so in context, they were trying to use the way they look to manipulate their spouse. And what Peter's saying here is, you don't have to do that. 
actually, manipulation in a marriage, manipulation in any relationship mortgages the future of that relationship because manipulation isn't based on trust. It's based on distrust. And you said something a second ago that I think is really important just for us to, to really feel it and, and understand it a little bit. You said that she, she could have been led by her emotions. And so frequently we do things because we're being led by our emotions. We're anxious over something. We're mad about something. We're sad about something. And, and I want to point out something that I think is important because I think it's important for us to honor our emotions. Our emotions are not an enemy of us. God gave us the emotions that we have. He's just asked us, like he's asked us to submit our mind and our will to him, he's also asked us to submit our emotions to him. And, and so I think we can be emotional we can honor that emotion and yet at the same time not cross the line into manipulation and not step into a space where that emotion damages our relationship rather than allows that emotion to amplify our relationship and that gospel story. And I, I think I know we can do that because and remember that verse in Ephesians? I think Chris used it last week. It's in Ephesians 4. It says, be angry and do not sin. I think that verse alone tells me that it's possible for me to experience that emotional anger, righteous anger. I can experience anger and do that in, and experience in a way that's not sinful. I can do that. I actually think you could substitute almost any emotion word in the word I'm angry right there. I can be sad and not sinful. I can grieve and not sin. I can be happy and not sin. I can be emotional and not be sinful. And I think when we step into the space in our relationships where I think to myself, in order to win, I have to manipulate, then instead of trying to win our spouse, instead of trying to win the relationship, I think what we end up doing is we try to win the argument. And I'm fully capable of winning every argument. Well, I think I am. Uh, I think I'm capable of winning every argument and in doing so, uh, destroying the relationship that I have with my spouse or with my kids or with fill in the blank. Manipulation, it always mortgages your future. And I think it's important for us to be emotional, to honor our emotions and not sin and not be sinful as we, as we do that. I think that's, I think that's really good. So let's, let's take a moment now in verse seven, because we see, we've been talking a bit about women. Verse seven is when it starts, it jumps into men and it starts talking about, okay, men, here's what you need to do. Let's look at that. Uh, let's look at what, what is it that men are supposed to do? How is, how's, what does submission, how is submission different for a husband uh, than it is for a wife? Well, uh, just look at the verse uh, again. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I just think that's funny because basically God commands men to understand women, so... Get after that, guys. <laughs> I think that's good. Um, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, I mean, really, how is submission for a husband different than it is for a wife. I think the most, there's several important things to say, to see in the verse. Uh, one of them is important to see, but two of them aren't only important to see, but they make me a little uncomfortable. I'll be honest, they just make me uncomfortable, and we'll talk about the other two in a second. But the first thing to see is that word likewise. In other translations of Scripture, it's translated in the same way. 
It's exactly how the verses for women began at, uh, in verse 1. Likewise, in the same way, ladies, he's connecting everything he's about to say about submission to what came before. In the same way as you're thinking about how to be submissive in a government context, how you're being submissive in a career context, ladies, here's how you be submissive in a marriage context. My, uh, men, in the same way, he's not taking anything away from what men are supposed to do. In this context, he's actually adding to it. He's saying, men, everything I've just said to the women about your submission, it, it all applies to you. Everything that I just said about women applies to you, men, and I'm adding this one new piece. I'm adding this other piece. You need to recognize, well, it's what it says. You need to recognize, you need to live with your wives in an understanding way and show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Basically, he's saying, guys, just like Christ yielded himself first for your salvation. As a husband, your responsibility is to yield yourself first for the good of your relationship, for the good of your marriage, for the good of your family. How can you use who you are and what you have for the benefit of your wife? How can you use who you are and what you have for the benefit of your kids, for the benefit of your marriage? It starts with everything he's already said to women and then becomes just a little bit more and I'll just be honest, um, as, I've thinking about, as I think about this, <clears throat> I know that uh, later today, you guys may be sitting around a dinner table, you may, somebody's mowing, somebody's doing laundry, somebody's doing something around the house, and you, you're thinking about what we talked about today, and you start arguing about something. I know there's going to be this temptation for one of you to look at the other and say, you heard what the preacher said, you have to submit, Right? You've you got to do that. And some of you, as we've been talking, I've seen you kind of go, you kind of giving the elbow, right? That holy elbow in the middle of a sermon. See, you're supposed to do this. But I think what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture is that submission done right is not about a demand that I make of you. It's about a gift that I give of me. And when you think about all the likewise, likewise, Wives do this. Likewise, husbands do that. Submission is such a critical element that it's not designed to be used as the baseball bat that says, you must submit. It's not about the demand that I make of you. The priority is on the gift that I give of me, right? And so if you find yourself being in an argument, saying the words, but you're supposed to submit, you've already stepped into wrong space. You've already stepped into the wrong spot. Because submission is about what you give, not what you demand. And, and as I read this, there are some things that make me pretty uncomfortable. And specifically, one of the phrases that make me, makes me uncomfortable, because, again, it may be why we need Baptist disaster relief. We tend to live on phrases like this. Uh, it says, we, we should honor the woman as the weaker vessel. So, um, uh, um, what, what does it make you think when you read Scripture and it says, you're the weaker vessel. It makes me want to challenge you to an arm wrestling challenge. <laughs> I would lose, but still. I don't um, know. I don't know. You know how competitive we are, so. I, she didn't tell me I couldn't say this. In the first service, I said I wasn't sure if it was appropriate and said it anyway. I'll wrestle with you anytime. <laughs> okay, so. <clears throat> moving on. <laughs> Uh, that's so the weaker vessel, um, <laughs> we, we could easily look at that as, um, demeaning and, you know, less than, but he's 
talking about how we are both jars of clay. And because of scripture, this is actually a good thing to be the weaker vessel. I love it in scripture where he says, in my weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect. And so we can delight in our weaknesses because in our weaknesses, he is made strong. And so instead of looking at this in a negative light, we can look at this in a positive light that because of our weaknesses, Christ can do far more than we ever could on our own. And it's funny to see that. Second Corinthians, first Corinthians talks about this a lot. There were some struggles in the Corinthian church that had to do with strength and weakness, authority and service. It had to do with men and women. It had to do with rich and poor. It had to do with positions of authority and prominence and slaves. Yet somehow that church found a way to come together. And no matter what that condition of strength or weakness was, they, they came together comfortably and sat together at the feet of Jesus. And, and as they did, it's actually in Corinthians where we read the verse that you have this treasure in jars of clay that no one may boast against God because your strength comes from God. And he's talking about everyone. We are all jars of clay. The Greek word there is the same as the Greek word it uses for vessels here. We have this treasure in these very delicate vessels. Men and women, we, we have these treasures in delicate vessels so that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. And it's also in Corinthians that Paul is praying. He's saying, I've got, this, I've got this infirmity. I've got this thing in my side, this thorn in my flesh. God, won't you take this away from me? And God responds to him. And he says, Paul, remember it's in your weakness that my strength is made perfect. And he reminds him of that. It's in Corinthians that we're reminded that we're all one body, but each one of us is a different part of the body. And then he says, in all these different parts of the body, some are parts that have the honor of being seen and being very visible, but it's our weaker parts that we cover up. It's our weaker parts that we honor um, by, by protecting well and by serving well. It's, it's the weaker parts of the body that we're careful in how they're presented in public, right? And so God's painting this, position, this picture that, that regardless of who is weaker and who is stronger, Weakness in Scripture is not something that's a slight. It's not intended to be, oh, you're so weak and I'm so strong. I'm so big and you're so small. I'm so smart and you're so dumb. That's not the intent of what Scripture is. He's designing a, a relationship that defines where the honor should fall, right? This is where the honor should fall. And so it, it's the reason why he says it right there in, in the verse. Showing honor to the woman. Why? Well, because... She's been designed to be that honorable vessel. And so I, I think that's, that's really, I think that's really an, an important thing for us to consider. And, and as we consider that, um, I think you guys, many of you know me and Londa. And if you know us at all, you'll know that we're both fiercely competitive. It's not good for us to be on opposing teams from one another uh, when we play anything because it, it leads to conversations. <laughs> uh, we, we've got to be, and it's in games, and part of the reason it leads to conversations is because when we're playing a game, I love playing games, but I also live by this game standard. It's for games only that says, win if you can, lose if you must, always cheat. Because, you know, if you're not right, that's, that's how you should play. That makes her mad. That's not good. Um, on our honeymoon, we played 22 different um, matches of tennis because I was ahead and we had to get to 22 before we would be tied. And I knew we needed to be tied on our honeymoon. Otherwise, it wasn't going to be a fun honeymoon, right? And so I knew we had to do that because we're both fiercely competitive. And if any of you know our relationship, if you know us and just know us as individuals, you would, you would be, it'd be easy for you to say, Londa is the one who is far more athletic 
and is far more interested in athletic things than I am. She's the one who's all about the ball field, and she's the one who's all about, hey, let's go watch this. She's got tickets already to part of the softball world series because she loves that, and I love that. I love that you love that. I'm, I'm not that. I, I enjoy other things. I enjoy athletics, but not like that. And if you've ever played co-ed softball with me, you'll know I'm not any good at it, right? And so that's terrible. But, and, and so weaker here is not, it's really not an expression of strong versus weak. It's not really an expression of athletic versus non-athletic. It's not that at all. It's about this position of honor that men should hold women in. We should hold you in honor. And we, we should do that. And so I think those things are important for us to see. And that's, that's one of those things that I think that helps us as we think about our relationships. And then specifically that last phrase, the last phrase in, in, the, in, the, in the passage of Scripture it says, uh, guys, you've got to get this right. You've got to figure out how you can be mutually submissive to one another and then men specifically so that your prayers will not be hindered. And that's such a big deal and such a convicting thing for me and such a, um, that's one of those things that makes me uncomfortable in Scripture because it says this, m- men notice this, just, just notice. If my relationship with you is broken, it affects my intimacy with God. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever experienced that, men? If my relationship with my wife is messed up, it hinders the way I can pray. And if it hinders the way I can pray, then it hinders the way I can relate to God. Now, there's this paradigm we have, the way of thinking we have about marriage that I think is not right. Um, I think there's a more biblical way for us to look at it. Uh, A lot of times you'll hear someone say, well, in your relationships, God should be number one and your spouse should be number two and and then you're third. You should always consider yourself third because God's number one, your spouse is number two and, and God's third. But I don't think that's what Scripture teaches us. I think what Scripture teaches is that we're in this love triangle with God. And at the top of that triangle is God and his love for us. And then there's the husband and the wife. And it's not that God should be number one. Certainly we should submit to God first, right? God is always number one. And it's not that God's number one and my spouse is number two. It's not linear like that. We're in this love triangle. God's number one and scripture teaches us that we're becoming one as a married couple. So it's not about an order of priority. God one, spouse second, me third. It's about God's number one and we're becoming one. And think about how this triangle works, this love triangle. If God's at the top of the triangle, the closer I grow in my relationship with God, the closer I grow to my spouse as she grows in her relationship with God. You see how that works? And if at any point, one of us, if my heart towards God becomes cold, then at some point my relationship with my spouse will absolutely be affected by that. If I stop growing and she keeps growing, look, the distance is growing greater between me and her while the distance between me and God has stopped. And vice versa. If either one of us stop our momentum towards becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with God, it's going to interrupt our ability to be deeply and intimately acquainted with one another. So it becomes so critical for both of us to keep our hearts tender towards God and towards one another because, guys, your relationship with your wife influences your relationship with God. And so it's why it's so important for us to to be the men who pray to be the men who study God's word and understand what it says, to be the men who serve our families well by not pointing to our preferences as to the way life should be lived, but by, but by pointing to scriptural principles that become this firm foundation on which our lives can, be, on, on which our, our lives can stand. 
And so we've got to have these moments together where we recognize that if my, uh, again, like I said, I can win every argument and, and lose the relationship. And then as I lose that relationship with you, it hinders my relationship with God. Actually, it's a little bit of a tangent, but when Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees um, about divorce, uh, remember the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they're trying to catch him in something. They're trying to trip him up. And so, hey, well, Jesus, Moses said we could get a divorce. What do you have to say about that? You know, they kind of got their arrogance going, hey, Moses, Moses said you could get a divorce. What, what do you say? Jesus' response is really interesting. He doesn't really directly answer their question, which is frequent for Jesus. He says, well, you understand why Moses said you can have a divorce, don't you? It's because you've hardened your heart. That's the reason why he said that, because you've hardened your heart. I have yet to meet a married couple. I have yet to meet a married couple that are either headed towards divorce or on the other side of divorce who I couldn't point to something in their lives and say, at, at some point, they harden their heart towards God. And in the process, they harden their heart towards one another. Or at some point in the process, they harden their heart towards one another. And then they harden their hearts towards God until their marriage fell apart. And maybe on the other side, maybe now that we're on the other side of that, God's had an opportunity to do a redemptive work in their life to soften their hearts up towards him so that he can restore some things in them. But the path towards divorce begins when we harden our heart towards God and towards one another because the path towards a marriage that lasts is us realizing that God's number one and we're becoming one. And the closer we grow with God, the closer we'll grow with one another. And so that becomes such an important part of who we are in marriage. So here's the challenge for today. If I were to give you a mission life challenge, as a married couple, the mission life challenge would be for y'all to have a conversation today. This would be a hard conversation, but it's an important one. What can I do for you this week that would help me yield myself to you better? How could I do that better? And for you to ask me the same question, for us to have this moment together, how can we yield ourselves to one another? I said it when we got engaged, all that I am, all that I ever will be, I give to you. So is there something I'm missing that I'm holding back? Could we have that conversation together this week? Could you ask a similar question of me? Could we have an honest, non-manipulative, gospel-based conversation about how our marriage can paint this beautiful picture of the gospel? Maybe that's another question to ask. Maybe that question is just so uncomfortable you're not ready to ask it. Maybe what you need to ask is instead, maybe you should ask each other question, does our, or maybe instead of a yes-no question, a how, how does our marriage magnify or minimize the gospel story? Maybe that's a more comfortable, maybe that's a safer question to ask. But pick your question and take some time this week to ask that question of one another. Does that sound Okay. Can we say thank you to Londa for joining me as I preach this message today? Thank you so much. Um, and she's moving off the platform, but I'm going to ask you, Londa, if you would stay close by because we're going to have a prayer time right here at the altar. And in just a moment, I'll pray and I'll ask us all to stand. And some of you may have heard this gospel thing for the first time and you want to know more about it or you'd like to talk with someone. There's plenty of people sitting right around you. You could just say, I want to know more about the gospel and they'd be glad to visit with you. But if you wanted to come talk to me about it, I'd be happy to do that. But for our invitation today, here's the thing that I would love for us to do. And it may be uncomfortable, but that's okay. Sometimes we ought to be uncomfortable. But I, I would love to see married couples all over, this, all over this congregation at the altar. 
just spending some time praying together, asking God to help us. How can we be that couple that magnifies the gospel story? How can I better submit in my relationship in my marriage so that I can honor Christ and honor my spouse? That we would be asking God to provide for us and to protect us, to fill us with his spirit and the fruits of, our, fruits of his spirit. That we would be a church filled with marriages that are unbreakable. Not because we're brilliant and the money's good. Not because we're just so mature and we're surrounded by so many great psychological resources, but because we've found somehow this way to take these principles that we've talked about today. Every one of these principles are so easy for me to say out loud, but so hard to put into practice, right? It's all, you know, it's, it's like a military plan. Every plan works until you meet the enemy, right? Well, all of these principles we see in scripture are really easy until I disappoint my wife. And then we've got to figure out how to make that work, right? What if we could be the church that built marriages that were unbreakable because they're built on Scripture and on these principles that God's given us? And we go out of our way to find ways to practice mutual submission out of mutual respect to one another in our relationships. How, what if we could be that? I think it starts at the altar. I think it starts with us confessing our need for him. I think it starts as we look one another in the eye and we say very simply, I'm for you. I'm going to use who I am and what I have for you. That's, that's, what I, that's what I'm gonna do in this marriage. That's what I'm gonna do. I think it starts here. In the, so would you join me? Would you join me and Londa at the altar as we do that? And if you're not married yet, you're still welcome to join us at the altar because you might be married someday. And you could simply just say, God, I don't know if you ever want me to be married or not, but if you do, I'm gonna submit to you first. And I'm gonna learn right now today to submit to you over and over and over again. Every day, Father, I'm gonna submit to you so that when it comes time for me to be married, if that's your desire for me, I'm gonna be good at honoring my spouse by submitting to you and growing close to you and encouraging that spouse to do the same. Could we do that together today? Let's stand together. And as we stand together, let's pray and join me at the altar if you would. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to build unbreakable marriages on your word that are blessed by you and that tell this incredible good news story about who you are? We love you, Father, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's